0: You. Today's speaker, Ben White, is a freelance journalist and writer specializing in Palestine and Israel. He has been regularly visiting the Middle East since 2003. He is the author of Palestinians in Israel, Segregation, Discrimination, and Democracy, published in January 2012, with a foreword by a member of Knesset Sanyad, uh, Zobi. Um, Ben's first book, Israel Apartheid, A Beginner's Guide, received praise from Desmond Tutu, Nur Musala, and Gada Karmi. Ben also writes on the broader Middle East, the war on terror, and Christian-Muslim relations. He graduated from Cambridge University with a B.A. in English Literature in 2005, and his final dissertation was a comparative study of the representation of disposition in the contemporary literature of Palestinians and Native Americans. Thank you, and without further ado, Ben White.
1: Is shattering Israel's image of democracy. Uh, and what you're going to find is that for most of this talk, I'm actually going to be focusing on uh, a group of the Palestinian people that there still isn't too much attention on, which is the Palestinians who have got Israeli citizenship, okay, 20% of Israel's population. And um, just before I go any further um, at all, I want to dedicate this evening's talk in the same way that I dedicated this uh, the second book that was published in January to uh, Amir Mahoul and his wife and uh, children. Uh, as it happens, um, we're doing this, uh, this week of yours starts. Uh, the day after yesterday was the uh, two year anniversary that uh, Amir was uh, snatched from his family house by Israeli security forces um, and subjected to a show trial and he's um, still in prison. He's a Palestinian citizen uh, of Israel. So I dedicated the book to him and also this evening's talk. There's going to be three parts to the presentation, which you're going to break down like this. The first section is called Jewish and Democratic, because this first section is going to kind of just touch upon a few aspects of how Israel defines itself, in defining itself with that particular formulation. And uh, I'll be wanting to kind of just suggest ways in which it's problematic to talk about Israel as being both Jewish and democratic, as it likes to see itself. The second example, uh, second section rather, is gonna give you a few examples of what that has meant for Palestinians since 1948, those who managed to stay and remain inside what became Israel. Uh, And the third section, which I've called Rethink to Reimagine, is where I'm going to try and uh, connect everything that's come before that to some of the biggest uh, questions of the whole question of Palestine, some of the bigger questions of the whole peace process or of the whole conflict. So, a little bit ambitious, but uh, let's try and do this. And uh, as as has been mentioned, there will be time for a QA and a as well afterwards. So this uh, this first section, Jewish and uh, democratic question mark, the first thing I want to uh, mention in this context, when we look at um, Israel and what it's meant for the Palestinians over the last uh, 60 plus years, is just to mention um, the, the way in which there, there are a few key laws that were passed in the first years of the state's existence that were, that were formative for how Israel set up its boundaries of inclusion and exclusion, particularly with regards to uh, the Palestinians. And I mentioned the three, three laws here, the law of return, the absentee property, Law, and the citizenship law, and without going into a lot of detail about each one of those right now, although the absentee property law I'll, I'll come back to more specifically. What these laws were effectively doing were saying the following, bearing in mind of course that these laws came immediately afterwards, after most of the Palestinians who would have been inside what became Israel had been ethnically cleansed by uh, the new state, okay, in 48. So in the first few years after that mass dispossession these laws were kind of uh, cementing in legislation, as it were, what had just happened in practice, in on the ground. Okay, so the law of return saying that uh, a Jew anywhere in the world can emigrate to Israel, become a citizen. The absentee property law being the key legal mechanism used to confiscate the property of the expelled Palestinian refugees. And the citizenship law being defined in such a way as to make sure that the expelled Palestinian refugees weren't allowed to have citizenship. So the three laws there together were really the kind of cornerstones, uh, if you can put it, foundation stones, of Israel's exclusionary regime. And And something to bear in mind is that when when the Israeli government or when uh, people sympathetic to the Israeli government's position talk about how Israel uh, wants to try and kind of present as uh, uh, proving in some sense that Israel protects the rights of minorities and this sort of thing. Declaration of Independence, though, is not considered a law uh, in Israel. Okay? Um, it doesn't have the kind of a legal status in terms of being able to protect uh, minorities' rights. Uh, and Israel doesn't have a formal constitution, so it's uh, which is not unique. There are other countries without a formal constitution. And what developed in, instead of a formal constitution are these things that are referred to as basic laws? So they kind of have a quasi-constitutional status, and they define a lot of different aspects to do with the role of the Knesset and elections and the military, etc., etc. But there is one basic law that I wanted to highlight um, because of the nuancing of the basic law, which is instructive for thinking about how that Jewish and democratic relationship or tension plays out. So this is Basic Law of Human Dignity and Liberty, in ni- which was uh, passed in 1992, which on the surface, I and mean, when you kind of give it a skim read, looks like it's actually providing a good deal of protection for uh, minority rights within the State of Israel, right, or maybe specifically for Palestinian citizens. W- once you look at the wording, there's a, there's a problem. This is in Section 8. There shall be no violation of rights under this Basic Law my emphasis, except by the law befitting the values of the State of Israel, enacted for a proper purpose, and to an extent no greater than is required. And one of those values, as the law also defines those values too, specifically the values of the State of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. Okay, so in other words, that conditioner, that qualifier clause in Section 8, is saying that even though these rights are protected in this basic law, the need to protect and maintain Israel as a Jewish state is a value that can trump, or kind of supersede, uh, those rights for minorities, the protection of minority rights. And commenting, just to uh, show you you an example, commenting on that particular aspect of Israel's basic law, a former, very well-known High Court judge in Israel's Supreme Court said this, Israel is different from other countries, it is not only a democratic state, but also a Jewish state. Here's another way of looking at what I'm talking about here. Um, This is a quotation from Ariel Sharon, of course, the former Prime Minister of Israel. Uh, And he said this, uh, speaking in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, he said that Palestinian citizens, of course, in his uh, language, uh, the Israeli Arabs or the Arabs of Israel, have rights in the land, that's my emphasis, but all rights over, the land of Israel, are Jewish rights. Now that's, again, a very important distinction that Sharon is making there. That's a distinction that he would share with the political mainstream in Israel. To paraphrase, what he's saying is, okay, we have a sizable number of non-Jewish citizens, of Arab citizens, and, uh, you know, whether we like that or not, that's the case. And we are granting them certain rights here, but they don't have any rights to the land, he's saying. The actual rights to the land, Sharon's words, are belonging to the Jewish people as a whole. So in other words, the Palestinian presence is a tolerated presence, kind of a a generous concession, almost. (laughs) One uh, final example of uh, what I'm talking about here, and this comes from a very different person to Ariel Sharon, from uh, Ruth Gavison, who uh, is an Israeli jurist, very well-respected, and uh, within the context of the Israeli political spectrum, considered a liberal. Uh, She was one of the founding members of the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. And she wrote this essay (coughs) about a decade ago now, I think, and the essay was called The Jews' Right to Statehood. So in this essay, Ruth Gavison is uh, defending the proposition uh, that Israel should be defined as a Jewish state. So even though but even though she's trying to defend that idea, even though she's tried to trying to portray it in the most positive light if you if you will, she still made uh, some pretty honest uh, blunt observations about what that means for the Palestinian citizens. So she wrote, "The Jewish state is thus an enterprise in which the Arabs are not equal partners." Remember, she's not talking about Arabs uh, per se or Arabs in neighboring countries but those Palestinians who actually have citizenship. And she went on, quote, the needs of Jewish nationalism do, in some cases, justify certain restrictions on the Arab population in Israel, particularly in areas such as security, land distribution, population dispersal, and education. Now, interestingly, at another point of this essay, Ruth Gavison is trying to make out that actually it's not so bad, after all, for Israeli Arabs, because maybe they can't identify with the flag, maybe they can't sing the national anthem, but ultimately that's just a question of some feelings. But at this point of the essay, she's actually being quite clear that there are key core material aspects of discrimination, systematic material discrimination, that is intrinsic in the nature of Israel being defined as a Jewish state, which contains a significant Palestinian minority. How that has worked out in practice, what has it meant in practice for Palestinians who are apparently uh, citizens of the only democracy in the Middle East, what's that actually look like? Uh, there are lots of examples I could have picked, but here's, uh, I'm gonna highlight three, for the sake of time. I'm gonna talk a little bit about present absentees. Uh, second example I'm gonna call is uh, developing the Negev. And I'm also gonna talk about the citizenship or family separation law. So who are, or what are the present absentees? Which sounds like a strange uh, strange name. <laughs> so you've got to remember, to understand the phenomenon of the present absentees, the historical context of the mass land confiscation that took place, that I've mentioned, particularly in 48 and the years afterwards, like the years afterwards. To give you an idea of what that looked like, okay, so between the years 48 to 53, the first five years of the existence of the State of Israel, 95% of all the new Jewish communities that were established in those 5 years were built on absentee property. Absentee property meaning built on the land and property that belonged to the Palestinian refugees who had been expelled and were prevented from returning home. So you can see here the nature and the kind of the direct relationship between expulsion of Palestinians and creation of new Jewish communities. That absentee property law that I mentioned was very important, particularly the way it was worded. And It was worded specifically in order to maximize the amount of land that could be taken from Palestinians. And what that meant was, was that there were a, a number of Palestinians who had managed to stay inside what had become Israel, managed to stay inside the new borders, so had become citizens. But in the context of the Nakba, had also had maybe fled to another village or have been expelled from one village and gone to another. So they are a way of thinking about them is internally displaced persons. But when the war is finished, okay, when the State of Israel had been established, even though they have received citizenship, even though in theory they're equals, their land and property was still taken from them, and has been taken from them until today, on the basis that they're not Jews, on the basis that they're Palestinians. i give you an example two villages, Kfar Buraim and Ikrit. These two villages, who as it happens, were uh, Christian Palestinian villages. Uh, Their residents were expelled in uh, 48 by uh, Israeli forces, but the residents managed to stay in what became Israel. And over the years, they tried to um, use legal means to return to their property and to demand their property back. As it happens, very early on in their efforts, the Israeli military declared both of those villages closed areas and demolished all of their houses, as a way of kind of saying, you know, your efforts are gonna be futile to to return. But anyway, they continued over the decades trying to pursue uh, claims for their rights. And eventually they got to uh, the stage where they were lodging an appeal, a case at the High Court, the Supreme Court, uh, where the Supreme Court, the famously liberal Supreme Court, accepted the government's position uh, about preventing the villagers' return, and what was the state? Why? What was the state's rationale for preventing the, these two villages from returning? They said this: the government's position was accepting the petition of these two uh, of the villages would have far-reaching and strategic implications that would harm Israel's vital interests because two hundred thousand other displaced citizens have also demanded they be allowed to return to their former villages. That was the position of the state to the court that the court agreed with. So in the Israeli state's own words, there are 200,000 Palestinian citizens who have had their lands and property taken from them and to which they're not allowed to return. That's a picture from uh, 2008 that I took. And uh, every year, when the Israeli state officially marks Independence Day, Palestinian citizens of Israel, and joined by a, a small number of uh, Jewish Israelis in solidarity, uh, mark the Nakba, mark the catastrophe, by marching to the site of a destroyed village. And this is what they were doing here uh, outside Nazareth in Sephulia. The Second example I want to uh, talk about is something that I've called um, developing the Negev. Uh, the word developing needs those quotation marks there because when Israel talks about developing the Negev, it's uh, often a euphemism for making sure that the Arab population of the Bedouin is confined to as small an area as possible, leaving the territory open for what they would also describe as Judaization. Uh, In the State of Israel, uh, there are dozens and dozens of what are referred to as unrecognized villages, and most of those are located in the south, in the Negev desert. Where tens of thousands of Arab citizens live uh, in these conditions because their communities are not officially recognized by the state as existing. Okay, so they don't, they're literally not on the map. Now, the reason for that being the phenomenon that exists until today um, is, kind of putting it simply, because of the way in which the state over the decades has intentionally manipulated. Uh, kind of the bureaucratic and planning regime to make sure that these communities are in areas that are not meant to be for residential building, okay? So the the villages, many of which, the existence of which, many of them predated the legislation, which then made them illegal. Um, And in some of of the unrecognized villages' cases, the people are only there in the first place because they were expelled from somewhere else and put there by the military in the 1950s. So but the, uh, the Arab citizens who live in these unrecognized villages find it very difficult to be connected to basic infrastructure, um, you know, kind of water, gas, electricity, etc., telephones, because technically the community doesn't exist. Uh, and it also means that they're subjected to house demolitions too, because if the community doesn't exist, then also uh, your property is, has been built without uh, permission. And this is a, a daily, weekly reality Uh, in Israel. Not just in the Negev, there are also unrecognized villages in the center and even some in the Galilee too, but most of them are down in the south. Now you have a parallel process in the Negev. At the same time, at the same time as unrecognized villages are targeted by the state and also um, uh, by uh, Paris state organizations like the Jewish National Fund, at the same time as those villages are targeted, you have the uh, government Israeli government pushing for decades now different initiatives that are aimed at what they call Judaization. Judaization being the idea that in a particular area of the state there are too few Jewish citizens and too many Palestinian citizens. Which sounds (laughs) ugly, right? Which is why you have to come up with nice terms like development. Uh, Shimon Peres, who for a reason that always escapes me is known as a dove in the West, told uh, American officials in 2005 that the Bedouin and the Negev are, quote, a demographic threat. Okay, just let the uh, kind of reality of what he's saying sink into there. So the current president of Israel is using the language that we normally associate with political movements of the far right, talking about ethnic or religious minorities, as constituting a threat simply on the basis of who they are, simply on the basis that they're not Jewish. That, was to, that came out in WikiLeaks, because that's not the kind of thing Shimon Peres normally writes op-eds about. Uh, Danny Ayalon, the current deputy foreign minister, um, again, he tends to be a little more blunt. The focus for today is to Judaize the Negev and the Galilee. So Israeli officials, I mean, this is an aspect that I haven't chosen to major on, but Israeli officials, elected officials from the very highest level down to municipal level, um, speak with uh, open, explicit racism towards the Palestinian citizens in a way uh, that is uh, not just tolerated, but is in many cases encouraged as a way of getting votes. I also wanted to mention in the context of what's happening in the Negev, um, something that is happening right now, that is developing right now, which is uh, an Israeli government plan uh, which will involve the whole scale eviction and removal of anywhere from 30 to 70,000 Uh, Of these Bedouin Arab citizens in the Negev, and the whole scale demolition of many of these unrecognized villages. Um, The idea being, from the Israeli government's point of view, that you want to concentrate as many of the uh, Bedouin in as small an area as possible, in official shanty towns that have been created for that purpose, thus freeing up the area that they currently live in for Jewish communities. uh, IDF training areas, military bases, uh, etc. And that's something that's uh, kind of unfolding at the moment, okay, the PROWER Plan, is what it's called. And it's the, uh, it hasn't been implemented yet, of course, but it's raised, uh, concern, it's kind of been an issue of concern by the British government, by uh, UN committees, the recent Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination highlighted the problem posed by the PROWER Plan. Um, so that's something that you should kind of go and look up and uh, watch out for uh, because that could have quite catastrophic consequences for tens of thousands of Israel's uh, Arab citizens. That's uh, a picture from Al one of uh, the unrecognized villages that has been demolished uh, dozens of times now. Uh, and that, the picture you can see on the top left, the, um, the village in the foreground is Hashan Zana. A Palestinian unrecognized village in the Negev, with Beer in the background, the Israeli city. Um, this so this is an unrecognized village. The state says it's illegal; it doesn't exist, etc. Subject to home demolitions. And the other side of that highway that you can probably see behind it, the other side, but to the to the right, as it were, is uh, Nevatim, which is uh, a moshav, a Jewish agricultural community, which is you know legal, authorized, um, good irrigation, etc., etc. Those two communities are only separated by uh, a small distance across that road. Third example I wanted to give was the family separation law, which is uh, more recent. It was passed originally in 2003, so it's been around for almost a decade now. Uh, and it was initially passed as a quote unquote temporary measure. Uh, and what it means is, uh, is that it's almost impossible for Palestinians with Israeli citizenship to live with, to legally live with, their husband or wife, if that husband or wife has um, West Bank or Gaza ID. Of course, the Palestinian people um, have relatives, friendships, links, across the so-called green line. So marriage between Palestinians with different ID is very common. Um, So this law also has had a very hard impact on couples who have to make a tough decision, you know, whether they live, whether one partner lives illegally in Israel with all the dangers that that presents. You know, does the one partner go to the West Bank to live, which is also complicated? Do they leave the country altogether, uh, etc. Now that law, um, s- quite simply, separating husbands and wives on the basis of uh, the one of them is a Palestinian with, from the occupied territories. Uh, That was challenged by Israeli human rights groups in the courts and got up to the the level of the High Court, the Supreme Court, uh, fairly recently, earlier this year. And again, uh, the Supreme Court backed the law. The, The Supreme Court supported the government's position. And the language that the Israeli High Court used was fascinating in the majority ruling. They said, quote, human rights are not a prescription a national suicide. Yeah. That's a very interesting wording that the majority of people in high court used, Firstly, because it's an acknowledgement that the policy itself is an abuse of human rights. Okay. But more than that, we can point out a second, uh, second comment you can make, is that that phrase, national suicide, in relation to demographics, is very similar to the rhetoric used by the leaders of the apartheid regime in South Africa, historically where they talked about the idea of black South Africans having equality as meaning national suicide for white South Africans. That was the same sort of kind of rhetoric of fear that was deployed then to justify systematic discrimination. Uh, And finally, what you can can say is here, is that even though the Israeli state, at least to the West, has tried to justify this law on the basis of uh, security, as is uh, obviously uh, often the case, The High Court here is is being clear that the reason why it's a good law is because you don't want a lot of Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza getting Israeli citizenship on the basis that they're married to a Palestinian citizen. Now, responding, the responses to the High Court's ruling were also uh, instructive. And here's one example from a member of Knesset from Kadima, a so called centrist party, although you have to remember in the context of Israel, Take your normal idea of the spectrum and you just kind of shift it to the right. <laughs> uh, the high, the member of Knesset for Kadima said this: the high court decision articulates the rationale of separation between the peoples and the need to maintain a Jewish majority and the Jewish character of the state. Okay, this isn't. These aren't the sorts of quotations that end up in the standard with us leaflets, but this is what they say, right, openly in the Israeli media. What he's saying here, the Kadima member of Knesset is that it's, it's good that we are separating Palestinian husbands and wives because of this principle of separation, which is what apartheid means, remember, in Afrikaans, between the peoples, and this obsession with the demographic battle, and this obsession with the fact that Palestinian babies are a threat on the basis that they're Palestinian. That's uh, one example, by the way, of a Palestinian couple that are now that are having that problem now of separation because of Israel's uh, law. <laughs> Now, I'm gonna to move to this uh, third section, um, where having asked a few questions about the way in which Israel defines itself as Jewish and democratic, quote, unquote, giving a few examples of, what's that, of what that's meant for Palestinian citizens, I now want to tie that to some of the bigger questions to do with the entire conflict and uh, what we think about when we think about a solution or how to move forward. I've put it here as a point making the links, the invisible green line, which might not make any sense to you, but i have put it there because it reminds me about what I meant to say now. Uh, Unpacking this, I mean two things. The green line, for anybody who doesn't know what that refers to, is uh, the term that's used to describe the border as, as such between Israel pre-67 and the territory Israel occupied after 1967, after the Six Day War. Okay, so that Green Line has a good deal of significance in international law because, for example, Israeli settlements built on the other side of the Green Line in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, formerly in Gaza too, are all considered illegal under international law because it's considered occupied territory. Okay, so in international law, the Green Line uh, continues to have a lot of significance. But what I, I mean two things when I talk about the Green Line having become invisible. Number one, I mean it in a practical sense. I mean, it practically, because Israeli policies now, since 67, several decades, has been fo- the policies have been focused on uh, colonizing key areas of the West Bank so as to make it impossible that they would ever be given up, right? which is why you see the positioning of major colony blocks, particularly around Jerusalem, but also deep into the West Bank, like Ariel, Uh, Down below Jerusalem, too, with the Rushetzion block, which bumps into kind of the Bethlehem area, etc. If you go, I'm sure many people, maybe some of us here, have been there, uh, you'll notice that a lot of the time you've no idea that you've crossed the so called green line. You've no idea that you've gone from pre 67 Israel into uh, post 67 occupied territory. And the reason for that is, is because of the successful successful policies of colonization, which don't just involve the settlements, but involve more more recently the separation wall as well, uh, a lot of which doesn't follow the green line. It involves uh, large areas of the West Bank that are now taken up by areas for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, to train in, uh, areas of the West Bank that are marked as, um, you know, kind of Reserved for the expansion of settlements or reserved for agricultural products for the use by settlers, etc. So there's so much of the West Bank that has been eaten up by all these different methods of uh, colonial occupation that the Green Line has less and less practical significance as an actual physical border, if that makes sense. So that's the one that's one reason that I mean the Green Line is invisible. The second way that I mean the Green Line is invisible. It's practical, but it's also a bit more conceptual, and it's a really important point that I want to make. What I mean by the green line being invisible is is that there's a kind of false distinction made, in my opinion, between uh, Israeli policies as as they affect Palestinians in the West Bank and in the pre-67 areas. Why? Because the intention and the aims of the policies are the same. So if the Israeli state is pushing forward the same goals... Whether you're talking about Galilee, Nazareth, Haifa, knock up in the south, or whether you're looking at Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, the Jordan Valley, the hills around Nablus, it's the same idea going on, the same policies that are being advanced, using different mechanisms. I mean, in one sense, in one way, you're targeting citizens, people who also have citizenship. In another case, you're targeting Palestinians who don't even have citizenship under the military rule. But the aim is still the same. The aim is to make sure that land and natural resources are kind of uh, um, given. Well, the first option is given to one group at the expense of another. That one group is able to dominate another group in, in both in all of the area that Israel de facto or de jure controls, which is all of Mandate Palestine, all of Palestine Israel, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Oren Yiftachel, an Israeli professor, um, put it put it like this. The colonized West Bank, the besieged Gaza Strip, and Israel proper, each with its own official set of rules, are merging into one regime system, ultimately controlled by the Jewish state. What he's talking about here, uh, here is he's talking about a de facto one state emerging. In other words, based on the reality of Israeli control and Israeli policies. I want to try and illustrate this through a couple of maps and um, uh, an image as well. Um, an aspect of this map might be familiar already to you. Uh, on the um, going from left to right, the black area signifies uh, land that is Jewish ownership or, after forty-eight, state ownership, um, Israeli state ownership. So uh, on the left, you have um, uh, this is kind of pre-Israel, like kind of um, around 1917, so just as the British Mandate is, uh, early in the uh, time of the British Mandate. Second map across, obviously a lot more Jewish ownership by this stage, and this is more like 1947, so just before establishing the State of Israel. Then of course you get a lot more black suddenly filled in because now it's 1960, and the State of Israel has been established, but you can see there are still kind of pockets of Palestinian homeland even within the pre-67 area. Uh, And then the map right on this side is bringing us up to date, by which time Israel has also been occupying the West Bank and Gaza and has taken uh, chunks and and pieces from the West Bank too. This second series of maps, is uh, I I like it because I've never seen something like this before and I got it, it's um, a combination of a a uh, Dutch-Israeli architect's uh, map and um, a map produced by some Palestinians in my, in, in my book. And this series of maps is designed to talk about the concept of access within this kind of one de facto, one state uh, regime. So the black, in this case, is where a person can go depending on the kind of ID they have. So on the far left hand side is where you can go if you're an Israeli citizen, right? Where if you've got an Israeli ID, citizen ID, that's where you can go in the black obviously, almost everywhere. Then moving along, um, that is where you can go if you have West Bank ID, if you're a Palestinian with West Bank ID. Then the next one along, the little the little bit, you can probably guess, that is where you can go if you're a Palestinian with Gaza Strip ID. And then the map here, which is entirely blank, i.e. nowhere, is where you can go if you're a Palestinian refugee, i.e. not able to go anywhere within within the entire territory. So that's just another way of thinking about how the regime discriminates uh, based on these kinds of uh, on that sort of basis about access which again is a pretty key fundamental uh, right and finally the image I was talking about just as a way of helping you visualize this uh, point I'm trying to make uh, I don't think that if you looked at these two photographs I don't think you could tell me unless you knew uh, the context in which I took them which one of these, Pictures took place in Israel's pre-'67 borders, and which one took place in the occupied West Bank. As it happens, the one on the left is from the Jordan Valley, and the one on the right is from the, the Negev. So this woman is an Israeli citizen, a Palestinian Israeli citizenship, and the one guy on the right is a Palestinian living under military occupation. But you can see it's the same thing taking place. The demolition of property, while right next to them, in both the Jordan Valley and the Negev, Uh, the state is enabling Jewish communities uh, and Jewish housing to flourish at the same time as their property is being uh, destroyed. The final um, couple of sections um, are focusing in on those two words of rethinking and reimagining. Rethink, and this is the first point of rethinking, to make sure that the approach or the analysis that we have is based on the facts on the ground what's really happening. Not what we think might be happening, what might have happened in the past, but what is really happening now. And also an approach that is based on the failure of the so-called peace process. I am of course giving the peace process the benefit of the doubt in assuming that the aim was ever to get peace. But let's just say that that was the case. It's clearly a failure because it's 20 years down the line and nothing like that has uh, emerged. Also, rethink in order to move beyond occupation discourse. Now I just want to clarify what I mean by that. What I don't mean, because it's a bit easier to explain what I don't mean by this, what I don't mean is that we shouldn't focus on the worst extremes of Israel's apartheid regime as it affects, for example, Palestinians in Gaza, who can be killed with impunity, who are subjected to the worst kind of control measures in terms of their movement and ability to trade freely, etc. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about uh, what ha- the horrors that happened in Hebron, for example. Uh, but what it does mean is that we, when we talk about the military occupation, we see it as one component in a bigger system. We see how the military occupation of the West Bank and Gaza is one element in uh, a bigger regime, it's one element of an Israeli regime that affects Palestinians beyond just the West Bank and Gaza. Also, and if this isn't clear by now, um, then uh, I guess I shouldn't have bothered uh, beginning to speak. We need to rethink the orthodoxy about Israel's democratic credentials. Uh, In Britain, where I'm from, uh, earlier this year, the Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg, went on the record when he described Israeli settlements in the occupied territories as, quote, an act of vandalism. Now, uh, reasonably strong words, but he said them knowing that there'd be no particularly severe consequences for him. Just as I'm sure for all your elected representatives in the States, there would be no severe consequences for them if they talked about Israeli settlements as an act of vandalism. But what is more interesting for me is what someone like Nick Clay feels he can't say, right? Even even as he condemns Israeli settlements, for example, or someone like the British uh, Foreign Minister or whatever, even as they condemn Israeli settlements in the West Bank, they will still be at pains to affirm that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, right? Or that within the pre-67 areas, Israel is a normal democracy, or whatever, some variation of that or on the theme. Whereas when you come down to it and you start to examine the facts, that's not a position that it's possible to uh, maintain. And as you ask those kinds of questions, as you raise those sorts of topics, then it's inevitable that we have to resist the attempts to fence off debate about Israel's so-called right to be a Jewish state. And well, that's not old, that's not an old kind of fencing off, but it's happening more and more because the defenders of Israeli privilege, the defenders of Israeli apartheid are worried. They're worried that the core issues at the heart of this conflict are being exposed for what they are. And that's what they call so-called delegitimization. I mean if we're talking about delegitimizing apartheid, then uh, I'm happy to be signed up as a delegitimizer. But when we talk about what's going on there, uh, and looking at the reality of what Israel's definition of a Jewish state means for Palestinians over the last 60 years, uh, then, you ha- then it forces you to ask serious questions and challenge that, uh, the idea that Israel has a right to be a Jewish state at the expense of Palestinian people. Finally. Doing that rethinking leads, inevitably, to a reimagining, which is also a positive um, process. Because it's possible to reimagine a future that is based on a genuine coexistence of equals. Coexistence is a word that is sadly abused by those people who would rather see no change in the status quo whatsoever and would prefer to eat hummus and smoke a shisha instead of really advocating for change. Okay? But it's possible to have real coexistence when you remove the colonial power framework that is so far uh, still existing and in place. You can also reimagine so that your idea of the idea of self-determination, of Jewish self-determination, Palestinian self-determination is no longer mutually exclusive, but is in fact based on the idea that both Jews and Palestinians can be sharing the same land as equals. Reimagining means, in my opinion, that the struggle has to emphasize things like rights and equality, emphasize the fact that this is an anti-colonial struggle, a struggle for democratization. And, and I have to credit a great website called Arena of Speculation for this uh, phrasing, reimagining means that instead of asking can we return or when will we return, Palestinian refugees can ask what kind of return do we want to create for ourselves? Final uh, final slide. This is uh, Moshe Dayan's father, who was a member of Knesset, the first Israeli Knesset in 1950. Maybe not allowing the refugees back is not right and not moral, but if we become just and moral, I do not know where we will end up. <laughs> Again, remember these. They spoke uh, in a way that's not uh, so common for them to speak these days. Um, but there's a there's an answer to that sort of question. Um, that doesn't respond with uh, fear um, or entrenched privilege but instead responds with a kind of defiant hope that something else is possible. Uh, And I'll finish with the words, the same words I finished the book with, which are the words from the uh, the late great Edmund Said, who put this, who wrote this. Coexistence, sharing, and community must win out over exclusivism, intransigence, and rejectionism. Uh, And the only thing I'd add there is that there is no time to lose. Thanks very much.
2: a very one-sided presentation on a very complicated uh, conflict, Uh, but there's still something that troubles me, and maybe you can clear it up for me. Uh, We say in the States there's an 800-pound gorilla in the back of the room, and it's called hatred and intolerance, and if you look at Israel's neighbors, Egypt, they're persecuting the Coptic Christians. Pakistan, well, not exactly a neighbor, they're persecuting the Christians, and even the Almighty Muslims. Syria, we know what's happening in Syria. We saw what happened in Libya. In Iraq, the Christians are being persecuted. In Sudan, they're persecuting the uh, animists and the Christians. Uh, It it goes on and on again. In Iran, it's the Baha'i and the homosexuals. Okay, so uh, you devote all of your time and energy to the one country, Israel. Okay, Uh, you talk about the refugees, and this leads to my question. Refugees, the Palestinian refugees, but perhaps you could address what happened to the six to eight hundred thousand uh, Jewish refugees who had lived for centuries in countries like Egypt, Syria, Iraq, when they were driven out of those countries. What happened? What did those governments do with their lands, their homes, and their possessions?
1: Okay, um, I, I would hope that um, people seeking to defend Israel's position would at least be able to hear what it sounds like when, instead of addressing the specific policies as they affect Palestinians, list a series of other issues that are not related to the colonisation of Palestine. <laughs> For example, I have never heard an activist who might be defending the Tibetan people's rights Uh, after a presentation being asked, so why aren't you speaking up for the people of Burma? The idea that someone who is not allowed to actually speak up about the Palestinian rights, however, is something that is uh, apparently a a common kind of assumption. Um, The question that came eventually there um, is about the uh, Jewish refugees from Arab countries, uh, which seems to be a very kind of uh, popular Hasbara talking point um, at the moment. I I like it. I like the fact that it's been picked as a topic to talk about because it get, it's another opportunity to highlight how, just as with the killing of innocents, my approach to the idea of refugees is universal. Uh, and in terms of whether Jews who lost their properties or lands in 48, the 50s, moving on through into the 60s too, should have their rights recognized and the people who took their property should be made to pay for the conquest. And I'm sure you agree with that but I'm not sure whether you would agree that the same is also true for the Palestinian refugees. However, that is the position I would take, which is that in all cases, refugees should have their rights recognized.
2: Uh, thanks for that great talk, Ben. Um, I just had a quick question. Why is it that the Bedouins are actually referred to uh, they're demographically separated from the Palestinian uh, Arabs within Israel. Hi. Like, you were referring okay. to the Arab Bedouins uh, exclusively when you were talking about the Negev, uh, as opposed to
1: when you were talking about Palestinian Israelis in different regions of Israel. Yeah, yeah this is quite a complicated uh, question, actually, in terms of how, they, uh, how sections of the Bedouin, Arab, Palestinian citizens of Israel choose to represent themselves, and uh, how they identify uh, too. And it depends, it kind of of varies, depending on the politics of the individual concerned, uh, or depending on, for example, even where they physically are. So, for example, there will be some who will contest the idea that it is even possible to use Bedouin as any sort of significant signifier, let alone like a racial or ethnic signifier and points out that it's simply another group of the Arab people of Palestine um, who are Bedouin in the sense that they have a lifestyle that is a ref- So it's, it's more reflective of a lifestyle than anything else. Uh, then on the other hand, since 1948, uh, the Israeli government have intentionally tried to make sure that there is that division there and have kind of um, adopted different policies. And of course, also, uh, there are Bedou- there's been Bedouins since forty eight. Who have chosen to serve in the IDF, just like with the Druze as well. So yeah, the identification process is uh, in terms of how they represent themselves is pretty complicated. So I think I probably ended up mentioning all the different versions to kind of cover myself because uh, because the because you will get a different answer depending on depending on who you're talking. To.
3: First of all, thank you so much for coming by and uh, delivering that lecture. Thank you for that. Um, so, right, uh what is your response to the claim um, that some make and that even Professor Goldstone, uh, Goldstone uh, Richard Goldstone, has made in an op-ed that he recently published in the New York Times that, you know, Israel does have some democratic elements. Uh, it can't be called an apartheid state because you have right now Arabs serving in the Knesset within the Israeli parliament. You have an Arab in the Supreme Court of Israel. Um, And and, uh, Israel has one of the freest Arabic presses within the entire Middle East. And finally, what is your um, opinion about uh, those Israeli groups uh, within Israel, run by Israelis, like, uh, you know, B'Tselem, Kesha, the New Israel Fund, um, Adalah, Uh, that are working to make Israel more democratic and that are working for the equal rights of all of its citizens. Uh, So I just wanted to have your opinion on both of those questions.
1: Uh, Yeah, so uh, Goldstone's objection in the op-ed that you talked about, which is uh, a reasonably common one to make, uh, says, puts forward the idea that you can't talk about Israel in terms of apartheid and gives some of the reasons that you just uh, highlighted there a good opportunity to make uh, a clar- an important clarification. Um, so when, when people talk about Israeli apartheid, they normally mean two things. They're either, like Jimmy Carter was, referring exclusively to the area that Israel has occupied post-67. So identifying what happens in the West Bank, for example, where you have a regime that uh, segregates settlers and occupied Palestinians as a form of apartheid. But Carter himself was clear that he's not talking about anything that happens in the pre sixty seven area. That's not what I'm saying, but that is one that is one way of talking about Israeli apartheid, which wouldn't therefore um, be problematized by uh, that Goldstone critique. The second way of talking about Israeli apartheid, which is how I'm using it, is as a framework of looking at uh, the entire territorial units um, within which Palestinians have. Or deny different sorts of rights. So if you think about it like this, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, who could vote in Knesset elections, who could stand if they wanted to, uh, are at the kind of top of the pile in terms of the sorts of rights that they are granted. And kind of next down, as it were. But I mean, and even within that group, you have differences, right? I mean, you could maybe put within that group people who live in unrecognized villages as lower down compared to people who live in, for example, uh, Haifa. Uh, then you've got Palestinians with East Jerusalem ID who live in East Jerusalem who have, who have lesser rights than the Palestinians with citizenship. Then you could say you've got Palestinians in the West Bank who are the religious occupation and their situation is worse still. And then you've got Palestinians in the Gaza Strip who be, for whom it's worse still. And I find that a useful way of looking at it because of the fact that there is only one regime, there is only one power there by like the Israeli state. And it is in whose control it is what sorts of rights those Palestinians have or don't have. Um, so that's what I mean when I talk about uh, Israeli apartheid. And that, too, therefore isn't problematized by the idea that some, a minority of Palestinians, uh, are uh, you know committed to vote in Knesset and have those sorts of rights as citizens. Um, the second aspect was mentioning uh, Israeli groups, of which you named a few of the NGOs, who are working <coughs> uh, Aspects of um, Israel's democratic nature. You mentioned one of the groups that you mentioned, uh, Adana, um, I know pretty well and and helped me with aspects of the uh, the book, for example. Uh, The work that most of those organizations do is very admirable, and in fact, they are targeted by a lot of uh, right wing groups in Israel, although, of course, remember my previous comments about the spectrum. Um, and indeed, targeted by pro israel advocacy groups outside of Israel, too. You know, groups who will slander, breaking the Adela, and all these other groups, smear them and say that they are whatever, you know, they are self-haters or blah, blah, blah. So they'll come up with all, with all this stuff about these organizations, even though what they're doing is, is basically documenting, in many cases, uh, maybe the abuses of the occupation army or... Case of Adala taking up legal cases as a way of trying to advance the rights of Palestinian citizens. And it's very important that those groups are there um, because maybe what we need to think of not to coexistence, maybe we can think of it as co co resistance because um, not just in Israel Palestine itself, but all around the world there are Jews who are happy to be joining in uh, with Palestinians in a struggle for for, uh, real equality. And for Palestinians' uh, basic rights, and the same is the case in Israel, albeit unfortunately in, in a small number. Um, I mean, another another group, which is even smaller still, would be the group like boycott from within, or who profits, who support the Palestinian uh, Court for BDS. So, on the whole spectrum, there is uh, a number of different groups. Or Zohrot, another group, um, who um, campaign on educating the Jewish Israeli public about the expulsions and ethnic cleansing that happened in the network. So, yeah, there's a there's a long list of, unfortunately, small but very active Israeli NGOs who are working to uh, improve it. We
0: have time for one more question.
1: Yeah, this is uh, I, I know that you were very pessimistic, and I don't see hope like, in your uh, presentation, uh, but we know from history like colonialism comes back and answers, is there any manifestation of this something to the Israeli Sorry, thing can, can you say that again? Any manifestation of what? Manifestation of this something like colonialism comes back and eats yourself, eats eat your, uh, oh, see. you know, yeah. whole, hold, hold, hold yeah, yeah. something yeah. like that. And the other thing is about if be, you spend some time in Israel, can you tell us something about the homosexual rights? Are these taught in Jerusalem? Is there something like that? Oh, we're ticking It's like Hasbro Bingo here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So I don't. I don't think this is. Uh, I didn't feel like it was very pessimistic in some senses, you have, to be, you have to be realistic about the actual uh, situation on the ground, because the situation on the ground is appalling. But actually, I think you'll find that the, the kinds of words that I ended with are actually very hopeful about the possibility of a situation where exclusivity and domination can be replaced by equality. Uh, I wouldn't be doing any of this if I didn't think that there was a chance, a very real chance that that could happen, despite the best uh, efforts of many people um, and, and the second part of your question uh, and the reference to the, to the joke I made, um, uh, it might be that you are uh, uh, genuinely interested in my views on uh, homosexual rights in Israel, but I find that unlikely because um, that sort of question is regularly posed as a sort of kind of way of saying, well, in Israel you have the gay pride parade, but if you go to Iran or if you go blah, 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 so it just becomes another version of but X or Y happens in some other place. Uh, thankfully, there are uh, groups that are representative both of uh, uh, um, both Palestinians and Jewish Israelis who kind of refute this pinkwashing, as it's been come to come to be known as, um, because it's just it's just another attempt to kind of uh, whitewash or screen the horrors of apartheid. I mean, the other versions that you hear of it are things like, oh well, you know, in Israel they use these amazing technologies for X, Y, and Z. Well, the first uh, human-to-human heart transplant took place in apartheid South Africa, but that didn't mean that everybody was like, okay, well, just because they made this medical breakthrough, it's okay, that black South Africans got be rights. So uh, yeah, uh, full rights for everybody. And of course, the main, uh, the main problem in this particular scenario is that the Palestinians are being denied them. Uh, and thankfully, as this was the last question, I would just like to also do something <laughs> that I've at to the beginning, which is salute all the efforts of the students in UC Irvine, and in Southern California in general, but here in particular, who despite the best efforts of people to intimidate them in their actions, uh, refuse to stop and carry on with their efforts in uh, championing the Palestinian cause. (laughs) And I particularly enjoyed coming here a year and a half ago, and again today, where I feel kind of uh, inspired and encouraged um, by their efforts. it gets all the sort, of right, publicity and attention, and I'm sure you don't want I mean to by that. Uh, so well done to all of you, and uh, yeah.